Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series Podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. I anticipate because of the room shuffle that there will be people who um, come in to join us. And so we'll, we'll have patience with them because, of, uh, because it wasn't easy to, for everybody to find the room and switch. Yeah, organizational change is not easy, <laughs> which will be one theme of today's conversation. So I welcome you here. I'm Hannah Riley Bowles, and I'm here um, hosting the seminar today as a co-director of the Women in Public Policy Program. We are recording today, so I'll also welcome um, those folks who tune in via podcast. And we now um, uh, are something approaching 50,000 downloads of our uh, of these sessions. So we're, our reach is broadening, and we're looking forward to more opportunities to share important evidence-based perspectives on um, uh, contributors to and strategies uh, for mitigating gender inequality uh, in the workplace. Today we are uh, really thrilled and honored to have uh, Professor Frank Dobbin from uh, the Harvard Sociology Department here to speak with us about do sexual harassment programs make policies more hospitable um, to women, question mark, and uh, you know, last week we had Lisa Leslie talking about how diversity programs can backfire, and I think you're going to be helping us raise some very important questions about um, even the, how the best intended policies do not always have um, the effects that we desire. Um, for those of us who've been in the seminar, we've also been reading um, Professor Dobbins' um, broader work analyzing uh, diversity programs and what types of programs are more and less effective and some of the reasons why. But because we are so eager to hear from um, Professor Dobbins, I can go on and on um, with his accolades, but I will I'll, uh, cede the floor so we can hear from you. Please join me in welcoming Professor Dobbins. Uh, thank you so much, Hannah. Um, so this is a, I'm talking about today about a paper that's collaborative with my long-term colleague, Alexandra Callas, who's at Taliban University. In 1977, federal courts first recognized <clears throat> harassment as illegal under the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And after that point, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission became responsible for enforcing the act. Of course, the, the courts have also been enforcing it. Until that point, if your boss told you that he'd fire you if you didn't sleep with him, he could fire you and there wasn't anything you could do about it. But after that point, from 1977, it became clear that that sort of quid pro quo harassment was going to be against the law and that employers were going to be on the hook for that if they allowed it to happen. Over the next years, um, we saw expanding definitions of sexual harassment. Uh, in 1986, the Supreme Court for the first time took a case and favored the plaintiff, uh, Meritor versus Vincent. And um, in 1991, everyone in the US became aware of what hostile workplace environment harassment was because everyone was riveted to the Clarence Thomas hearings for the Supreme Court where Anita Hill explained to people what essentially what hostile work environment harassment was. If your boss talked to you about pornography and you were not interested in that and tried to avoid it, that was harassing behavior, although the Senate Judiciary Committee didn't, didn't go along with Anita on that one. 
Um, what is striking, if you kind of take the long view of this, is we've known for 40 years that harassment was against the law. Um, but if you look at the incidence of harassment in the workplace, it doesn't look like it's gone down. It looks like it's been pretty flat. So there have been a bunch of one-shot studies over time. And the earliest <coughs> ones show that something like 40% of women are harassed at work. And the latest ones show that something like 40% of women harassed, are harassed at work in, in a given two-year period. It doesn't look like our knowledge that harassment is wrong, harassment in the workplace is wrong, and everybody now knows it. Um, it doesn't look like that's changed much, but most importantly, I think, it doesn't look like the interventions we've put into place to try to address harassment have actually done much to address harassment. At least, it doesn't look like they've done a whole lot to reduce workplace harassment. And these studies mostly use a similar methodology over time. I mean, they're not completely comparable, so maybe harassment has gone down some, but it doesn't look like it's dramatically declined over time. <clears throat> and what I want to talk about today, out of water. Um, what I want to talk about today is the efficacy of um, workplace practices in corporations over time. Um, and what's discouraging about what companies have been doing over time is that there's a fair amount of research on the main two things companies do. And the main two things they do is, are to um, create grievance procedures that allow people to complain and in principle get some kind of resolution if they face harassment at work and to institute training so that people know about company policy or employer policy. They know that it's against employer policy to harass coworkers, and they know what the grievance procedure itself looks like, so they know how to complain, they know how to file a complaint. These are the main two kinds of things employers have been doing since the early 90s. I mean, in the, by the time of the Clarence Thomas hearing, something like 25% of private sector corporations had a grievance system in place. And by the late 1990s, um, when the Supreme Court uh, made two important rulings, about 75% uh, of employers had some kind of grievance process in place. So it, you might think that the um, Clarence Thomas hearings got more employers on board. But what I want to argue today is these things really haven't done very much to reduce harassment in the workplace. And one of the, one of the most um, disturbing consequences of this is that we know that workplace harassment causes women to leave. And I'll talk about, of course we know that women can harass men and men can harass men. And the last time I gave this talk, Somebody said that because I, 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 rightly, because I kept talking about women as victims and men as perpetrators, um, I was reinforcing gender stereotypes. So I'll, as a proviso at the beginning, I will talk about women because they are most likely to be harassed and men because they are most likely harassers. Um, but also our data show effects of these programs on women and men, both uh, on women, but not on men, both negative and positive effects. Um, so, um, what's discouraging about these programs is we know that 
we know from plenty of social science research that grievance procedures tend not to resolve complaints for women. Mm -hmm. If you look at women who filed complaints, the most likely outcome after they file a complaint is for them to leave their job. Mm -hmm. it, the most likely outcome is not for that the man is somehow punished, or that the man is transferred, or that the man leaves his job. Yeah. Is there any way to know if they're, they've already decided to leave the job and then that's why they finally made a grievance? Do you know what I'm? Uh, there are several retrospective studies. Um, one, McLaughlin, Blackstone, and Ogan. Um, there are a couple that are done by the um, Merit Systems Protection Board in the 1990s where they survey people and ask them retrospectively you know, kind of how they got to where they are, and they, they look at people who were harassed and complained and were harassed and didn't complain. It, it looks from those studies like people complained in, hoping, in, in the hope of getting some kind of resolution. Um, and I think, you know, I think when you look at uh, interview studies, if people have already decided to leave, they don't complain, they just get out. So my guess is that that's not what's going on, but we could always use more studies. Um, so, grievance procedures don't look super effective, and training itself doesn't look very effective. As I'll, as I'll discuss, it looks like most men don't change much about in, in terms of their views or behaviors as a consequence of training. And some men are antagonized by training and may behave worse after training than before. So there's reason to believe that, that both um, grievance procedures and the conventional kind of training that we usually get, such as the training all faculty and staff were suddenly required to undergo last summer um, for the first time. It looks like conventional training isn't really very effective. But there's some hope, I think, in the, in the, the literature on um, bystander intervention training, because that looks to be more effective. And I'll argue that manager training takes that form typically, and it looks like it has more positive effects. So I'm going to make arguments today about the effects of grievance procedures, the effects of standard training, and then the, the effects of training where you're not being told that you are a potential perpetrator, you're being told that if you see something that bothers you, there are some tools you can use to try to intervene and to try to prevent things from getting worse or to try to stop it from happening in the first place. The data I'll be talking about, so remember the Clarence Thomas hearings. He was the, before joining the Supreme Court, he was the head of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, and Anita Hill was a lawyer for the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. And there's, there's some justice in the fact that I think that we're using Equal Employment Opportunity Commission data. Um, and at the time, by the way, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission was responsible for enforcing sexual harassment law. That's the fox in charge of the hen house. Um, so these data, these are the data uh, I'll be talking about today. They come from the EEOC, which does an annual census of all workplaces with at least 100, all private sector workplaces with at least 100 employees. And what you see here is not the percent of each of these groups 
in management, it's the percent of, if you look at the top line, the percent of all white men in the private sector workforce, private sector, in, but only including employers that have at least 100 workers, so not tiny workplaces. The percent of white men who are managers, so it's kind of like, what are your odds of being, a couple of you have seen this slide recently, um, what are your odds of being in uh, management if you're a white man? And what's disturbing here is it's looking like women, white, African-American, Latina, um, and Asian-American are not very rapidly moving to meet where white men are. Because white men had a, you know, kind of, that's like a one in six chance of being a manager. It's been that way since the late 90s. Um, but if you look at black and Hispanic women, who are the bottom two lines, they had like a one in 25 chance of being a manager in the early 90s, and now they have a one in 20 chance of being a manager, a 5% chance, something like that. The last three years here are preliminaries of age. I'm not super confident in those, but if you cut this here, it looks like they're really not making a lot of progress. And even if you look, look at white women, they, it looks like they got, again, if you just, I'm not sure about the last three years, but, but certainly since the late 1990s, they, they stopped making much progress into management. And this, isn't, this is what many people have been showing over the last few years. Um, uh, Asian-American women look a little better, but it kind of looks like these groups get stuck, and black and Hispanic men look particularly, particularly bad, as in no progress at all since about 1985. But that's a story for another day. So we're using these data, A, because we have them, but B, because it's really hard to measure the efficacy of interventions on actual harassment. Because it's super hard to measure changes in harassment at the workplace level. So, you know, so people have tried to look at individual workplaces over time that do these interventions and figure out if harassment goes up and down. The problem is, if you do some intervention like you, you offer a grievance procedure or you offer anti-harassment training, it affects how people perceive what happens to them. And so as a consequence, people start, sometimes start reporting more harassment. And so it's not clear, you know, so training to reduce harassment usually is followed by increased survey reporting of harassment. So that's really not, that's not a very good measure. Um, almost nobody ever files a formal complaint. So some people have tried to use like formal complaints to the EEOC, and we have the formal complaints to the EEOC, and it's so random because people so rarely report. And one of the reasons they, re they don't report is they know that if they report, they're gonna have to leave their job because they've already seen it happen to somebody in their workplace. So that's, what you might call endogenous, you know, the, the thing doesn't work, and the complaint process doesn't work, people don't, so people don't bring complaints, so you can't, it's hard to measure if it's working, you certainly can't measure it with complaints. And one of the most troubling things is that in industries where we know harassment rates are just off the charts, women are like, no, no, it's, it's fine, didn't happen to me, 
or that is their, in, their psychological denial. They'll say, you know, it was, it's no worse than what my brother used to do to me. Oh, it's not your brother. Um, or, you know, boys will be boys. So if you, in industries like construction and mining, women <coughs> often don't, aren't, aren't admitting to themselves that what they experience is harassment. So we're measuring harassment as changes in women in management, and that comes from the insight I talked about before, which is harass, harass women often quit. Is it, am I interrupting your flow? If I, no. I can I ask a clarifying question with regard to that? Um, the so the women in, in mining and um, what was, construction was the other example that you used. So one thing that just crosses my mind is there a possibility that they're um, maybe it's less about a question of being in denial themselves than to like more broader levels of harassment. So like in a hypermasculine work environment, you might actually find a very high level of aggressive teasing and even physicality that would not be tolerated in less hypermasculine work environments. So there's a chance that maybe it's like relative to the bar of acceptability of aggressive um, physicality and teasing behavior and stuff like that that they don't perceive it as much. Is that a possibility? Yeah, that's possible. That's possible. So basically, incivility and bullying are very high. We know it; they're very high yeah. in the construction industry, and right. I would imagine. I mean, because there are studies of that, I would imagine the same is true in um, in mining. So yeah, that could be it's just an alternative so, explanation for right. why they might be less likely to code right. some of that behavior as harassing because it doesn't seem relative to, it doesn't stand out in the environment as yeah. differential, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think it sort of comes down to the same thing, that women don't report it as harassment because it's just the same thing. They, I mean, they, and they may see their male colleagues subjected to the same kinds of bullying, just not around sex. Or, right. And of course, a lot of it is gender-based harassment, so it's not, it may be about, you know, women can't lift stuff, or women are too slow to move big objects. Uh, so anyway, our, our supposition is that effective harassment programs should increase the number of women managers by stopping women from leaving, uh, either before they're ready to be promoted into management, um, or um, stopping leaving women leaving as managers, because women managers are often harassed uh, as well. So, uh, the data we're using are a little dated, but they have an advantage, which is that we can actually observe uh, the EEOC data from 1971 through, <coughs> actually ends in 2002, and um, our survey covers that period, and this is the period when these programs became popular. So we can look at whether the introduction of each of these programs was followed by increases or decreases in gender diversity and management by intersectional gender diversity by the four groups. Um, I showed on the first slide white, black, Hispanic, Asian American women in management. So we have um, five hypotheses, and they come from the existing literature. So I'd like to begin this by saying that we're building on a long tradition of research in sociology and psychology. And what, what I'm going to show you is supported already by a lot of existing research, but no one so far has looked at whether these interventions, use 
you introduce a grievance procedure, whether they have effects on overall gender composition. And it makes sense that they would, since we know that harassment tends to cause people to leave. So if you can, if you can prevent harassment, you might reduce the number of women who leave and get more women in management. So the research on grievance procedures shows that when people file a grievance, retaliation is very common. Most women, according to most surveys, report some kind of retaliation after they face harassment, which might be further harassment, it might be bullying, it might be they get put on the night shift, and it might be they get raped. So complaining itself seems to incite backlash that has serious adverse consequences for women in the workplace, and that's why women tend to leave. And then we know um, from, the, from these retrospective studies of women's careers that women who speak up compared to women who say nothing and, and report that they experience the same kind of harassment, women who speak up have worse career outcomes, worse mental health outcomes, and worse health outcomes. So it's, it's hard to advise women to speak up on, in this situation, like you want something to happen, but also men, because, because, because the procedures tend to protect the rights of men to, to due process and to anonymity, uh, if you speak up, often nothing bad happens to the guy and bad stuff happens to you. So we think that grievance procedures are going to make workplaces more hospitable. By the way, you know, um, a lot of the people who quit after when retaliation happens are not the women who've been harassed, but their friends or the people who have followed the process. So most of the her research on anti-harassment training is covered in the next slide, which covers the conventional kind. But there's some promising research on anti-harassment training um, from the bystander intervention group. And I recommend um, Sharon Potter's, Sharon with a Y, uh, research. She's at the University of New Hampshire. She's cited here. Um, and this research shows that if, if you do training in this way, um, Harassment is common in your environment. So these studies are mostly done on undergraduate men and women and enlisted people, men and women, in the Army or in the armed forces. So the, the, the way bystander training works is you're told not that we're worried that you will harass other people, but that harassment is going to happen in any workplace. And everyone needs tools for intervening. They need to know, first of all, how you might recognize the beginnings of harassment, and then what you should do if you're in a situation where you think harassment or assault might happen. In, so what you should do in the short term, and then what you should do in the longer term. And manager training tends to take this form, because managers are told, you know, every workplace has harassment. This is a management issue. As a manager, you're responsible for your group. You're, so you're supposed to try to prevent it from happening. And the first thing they're told is, if you think something bad is about to happen or has happened, don't close your eyes. Don't do nothing. Act immediately. And then managers are given a bunch of, usually a bunch of tools for, here's what you can do. 
or at least the ideal form of manager training looks kind of like this. And what one of the things you do is you talk immediately to the person. Well, if, if there's a situation that's going on right now, you just step between the people, or you make a joke, or you distract people. You just try to stop it from happening. But then after that, you talk immediately to the person you think is maybe being harassed or is about to be harassed, and ask them if it's happened before, and try to figure out what's going on. And if they report something bad going on, you don't necessarily kick it to HR. You just try to stop it right away. Um, increasingly, I think council is telling people to kick it to HR, which I, I personally don't think is the right solution. I mean, the, the bystander training people would say, do not kick it immediately to HR. So some of the um, bystander training uh, literature I've seen um, does show increases in people's awareness of harassment and, and their uh, self-reported uh, um, likelihood to intervene. Do, do we actually know that it lowers the incidence? We that? don't know that it lowers the incidence, but we do know that it lowers not only self-reported likelihood to intervene, but four or 12 months later, now there have been quite a few studies, so there's some meta-analyses. Four to 12 months later, depending on the study, um, Army recruits and college students, men, report having done, having actually intervened. And you know, those are the two places where harassment and assault are most common in America, college campuses and the military. So um, it does look like, seems like I shouldn't walk around that way. No, you're doing great. You're doing a great job. <laughs> sometimes they tell you. It's a futsy tripod. Sometimes they tell you. Your feet have to remain inside this box. <laughs> so, it, it, so that's the thing. We until now we haven't really known whether. Um, oh, uh, let me just finish this sentence. Whether um, training, this kind of training, seems to work at the population level. It appears to work on individuals in a way that the other, that conventional training doesn't. Yeah. Hi, you, sir. I'm Nicole Stewart. I'm the second lieutenant in the U.S. Air Force. So you brought up the U.S. military. And I'm a manager of my job, and I have 61 airmen underneath me. And we, so as officers, we're, so we're told what to do when there's a sexual assault reported, but we don't really get told what to do with sexual harassment. And in fact, the Pentagon even said that they don't track sexual harassment, and they kind of focus on uh, specifically sexual assaults. So I was going to ask two things. First thing, so what, what can I do as that manager role in the U.S. military to kind of help out? the men and women I have beneath me. And second thing is, do you think we're doing a disjustice to women and men, specifically women though, in the military by not tracking these sexual harassment cases? Uh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, the first thing you need to do is track cases, although we know that even in the military, most people don't file complaints. So it's not 100% clear that you would solve the problem by tracking complaints. A lot of employers have put in elaborate tracking systems, but since very few people actually file complaints, it can be hard to figure out whether their tracking systems are very effective. Um, as a manager, uh, I would look for, um, so I, I should say, the, the studies were conducted in the military, but it's not like the whole military has this intervention going on all the time, that it's bystander intervention training. But I would look for online bystander intervention training modules, because there are some you can find online. And they'll, they kind of tell you, here's what you might do. And I think they're very empowering, because most managers, when interviewed, will say, yes, I 
did have that happen to some people in my under underneath me, and I didn't know what to do, so I went to HR, or but I didn't intervene. And HR will, you know, even on even on college campuses, tell you if somebody comes and talks to you about harassment, don't do anything. Well, I mean, on bystander intervention training does not say don't do anything. So, but we don't. I mean, we need more research on this, and we need more research about what it's going to do in the in the workplace. Um, there's been most training, most um, research about standard forbidden behavior training that usually the training modules include a list of what you shouldn't be doing, like what is sexual harassment, so it's definitional. And then um, they usually cover the law and what's, what you're supposed to do if you get a complaint and how the grievance process works. And the problem is that most men feel that they are being trained because they are being accused of being harassers. And so, so it's interesting to look at men who are, you know, kind of more and less feminist. And one way to tap that is there's a gender role conflict survey, or a series of items that um, some of the, some of the studies give men at the beginning and then again at the end. And the men who score low on gender role conflict, like they're not kind of, they're not. Um, they're not likely to have conflicts with other people on the basis of gender. Men who score low tend to respond very well to training, but men who score very high tend to respond very badly to training, and it makes things worse. And we see that also with, there's, a, there's, a, there's some very good scenario-based studies that kind of give people a scenario and ask them what, what should happen next. And some of them show that men um, men who score very high on likelihood to harass in the beginning, like they think harassing behavior is okay, score even higher after the training. So these studies suggest that the typical forbidden behavior training might make men who are prone to harassment more prone to harassment. So, so if you, you know, imagine there's a distribution of men. You've got men who are not likely to harass, so they're going to be even less likely to harass, but they weren't likely to begin with. So you can see that this kind of training might not work and it might have adverse effects. Yes? I was just going to ask, could you help me understand what you mean when you say people who scored highly or lowly on the gender role survey to begin with? Um, well, so, the, so there's a gender role conflict like set of psychological items. So people are asked, I can't remember how many questions, but a few questions. And then it you know, it's, it's like the explicit racial bias um, uh, set of items. You know, you can like, figure out if people are racially biased by asking them stuff. Like, I can't remember exactly what the questions are that psychologists use, but for gender. So, and then the problem is that people who score high on that, it's like people who are sexist become more sexist after the, after the intervention, which makes sense, Justin Tinkler, um, at University of Georgia has some interesting studies showing that harassment training reinforces gender stereotypes rather than, and so it makes people think of men as powerful and women as weak. I think that answers the question. I was wondering about the sort of theory of, of the uh, effect that you find and the disinhibiting impact of this kind of training. 
I mean, it's surprising that it would have disinhibiting impact, right? Because you would think that people would be more self-conscious, but apparently, <laughs> if if you haven't gotten the message yet, this kind of training isn't uh, doesn't help. Yeah. So could you clarify, are you talking about all training, or are you excluding the bystander training? Excluding the bystander training, right. So this is, the mo this is what most of the studies look like. A lot of them are done with college students, but quite a few are done with existing managers. They're mostly lab studies. Some of them are field studies, but they tend, to, they tend not to show anything that would lead you to believe that harassment will be reduced. Um, so we think that employee, this kind of employee training will make workplaces less hospitable, that is, we'll see fewer women in management after the introduction. Yeah. Can you track the, the cycle of the training? Because there have been a shift over the last couple of years of sexual harassment training to inclusive training and see if you can find something different. So um, we're doing that study right now. <laughs> but we, unfortunately, in this, um, we're doing that survey right now. In the, in the survey I'll talk about here, we didn't do that. So. Can you just repeat what she said? I'm sorry. Uh, she said that, can you track the type of training? Because there's been a shift from regular sexual harassment training to harassment and inclusion training. And there are some other things like incivility <coughs> training and, some cases, or bullying, anti-bullying training. Um, so then we, so that, so we have a prediction about grievance procedures, about manager training, and about um, employee training, which is typically the forbidden behavior kind. And then we have two hypotheses about the composition of management itself. So the first comes from research on gender, grievance procedures, and training. Um, so grievances. What in, in surveys of men and in, and in experiments, men are much less likely than women to believe someone who comes forth with a harassment complaint. So men are more likely to say, "She's trying to get money out of us," or "It was a romantic relationship gone bad," or "She's a poor performer and this is her excuse." or something like that. And women just tend not to think those things. They tend to, they tend to say, okay, yes, there's some correct. So we think that in workplaces where there are more women in management, grievance, grievances are more likely to work. Because if you go to your boss's boss or to the person in HR, they're not likely to say, are you sure you were harassed? Wait, did you have a relationship with the guy before? Hold on. So they're less likely to try to divert you, and less likely to just not believe. Somebody cut their hand up. Yeah. Uh, is that different um, based off of the, like the gender of the person coming forward versus the manager? Like if, if it's a man coming forward to a man, is it markedly different than a woman coming forward to a man or vice versa? The, the studies I know of, which again, they're surveys and experiments, usually use a woman coming forward, so I don't I don't recall offhand whether there's whether anybody looked at that, but that would be an interesting thing to look at. What's your what's your idea? The idea would just be like in the scenario, you're probably most likely to associate with seeing yourself in that scenario. Yeah. So if you're a man, you're like, well, I wouldn't do that, or vice versa. If you're the like a woman, you'd say, oh, that's like I wouldn't want to be that person. So yeah. Just like putting yourself in the scenario, I figure it might have a pretty significant effect. Because in that in that scenario, right, if you're the man and a woman comes forward, then you in that scenario would be the accused. And if 
it was a man coming forward, you'd be the victim, and it might very be different. Like you might be a lot more empathetic to someone who yeah. the same gender as you. Interesting. You know, um, there's a there's there's a, a literature in psychology, um, the perspective taking literature, that shows that if you can get the person to think of themselves as the person they're interacting with, then they're much more likely to take that person's perspective. And you know, there's some interventions that you can do to do that. You can do that. Um, encourage that. So, um, so we think that in general, women, more women managers, will improve the effects of grievances because they believe the grievances. But also, training tends to make. I talked about some of the adverse effects on on some men in training experiments. Training tends to make men less likely to believe victims, um, more likely to blame them and tends to make men less likely to say that they, like after training, less likely to say that they would report it up the line if somebody, one of their underlings came. And um, so it looks like training can have um, negative effects on how men behave, or at least how they behave, say they'll behave in experiments, but not the same level of adverse effects for women. Training tends to have more positive effects for women. So we also think that if, imagine a firm that has 50% women managers and they get training versus a firm that has 2% women managers and they get training. We think that training is going to have just better effects in a firm that has 50% women managers because you don't have 50% men who might suddenly become more likely to blame victims, for example, and, and more likely to say harassment isn't really a problem, it's fake news. <laughs> Final hypothesis. So conflicting with the one I just outlined, um, it is discouraging, but um, research on group threat suggests that when the dominant group in the lab or in a workplace, so in the workplace it's white male managers almost always, when they feel threatened by another group, they are likely to interfere with efforts to help that group in any way, such as anti-harassment training and grievance procedures. And there are a couple of very good studies, um, Cohen, Broshek, and Haveman, 1998, which is on workplaces and gender generally and group threat. And then McLaughlin, again, in Blackstone, 2012, is, is on harassment in particular. A couple of good studies that show that this it seems to be working in the case of gender group threat in the workplace. That is, that when white men feel that their positionality is threatened. And the intersectionality literature suggests that the biggest threat to white men is white women because they have one superordinate uh, characteristic and one subordinate characteristic. That is, they're white, but they're women. Whereas minority women who have two subordinate characteristics, black and women, or Asian and women, or Hispanic and women, are not so much of a threat to white male managers. They don't feel that they're going to lose out here. And then the, another thing going on is that white women are, in almost all workplaces, the second biggest group of managers. And when they get to 30% or 40%, white men, and this is what we know from previous studies, they start to feel threatened. They start to feel like, my group is losing here. And they start to feel like, my career might, might be affected. So while we think in general 
women in management, total women in management will help, that is, will help grievance procedures, manager training, and training for all employees to work better. We think it won't be true for white women in the case of white women when they have, so when there are lots of women in management in general, we think there will be adverse effects for, for white women. Uh, it sounds like you've, the people in the class have looked at some of our research, so I won't spend too much time on methods, but we're able to, by looking at 805 firms over uh, 30 years, by looking at the demographic characteristics of these firms over time, and then we had these data on when interventions happened. So we can, so what we can do is we look at, say, Harassment training is put in in 1990. So we look at it in a given firm. So we can look at its average effects on each of the four groups of women in management over the next 12 years or so, however many years we have data for that firm. And so that's what we do for all of this. On average, we have something like seven or eight years of data after the intervention, the three uh, grievance procedures, manager training, and employee training. So we have a bunch of years of data. And then, and so we can isolate the effects in models, in fixed effects panel models where with robust standard errors where we, um, we control for all the other diversity programs they have and all other hiring practices and promotion practices we can measure. Plus the demographic characteristics of other people in the firm, like non-managers and the demographic characteristics of the labor market. So like how many black women are there in non-management jobs in the firm, in the industry labor market, in the state labor market. So we can pretty well isolate what happens or the after um, companies put these practices in. That's a little bit more about methods. This just shows the spread of um, women and women managers in the sample work places. This is not this is not what I showed you. This is not the corollary to what I showed you before. This is the percent of managers from each group. Not the percent of group members who are managers. So for each of these I'll show you the simplified regression, eliminating most of everything in the model, focusing on the things we're interested in, and then I'll show you a box plot. So what this shows is that sexual harassment grievance procedures have significant negative effects on Asian women, and so in red are the things that are significant. The effects are negatives for the other groups, but they're not close to significant. Here, but as I'll, I'll show you in a few minutes, it matters how many women in management your employer has. Manager sexual harassment training seems to have positive effects on three of the four groups, all but Hispanic women. And employee sexual harassment training has negative effects on white women. <coughs> so that's the box plot. So if you look, if you look at grievance procedure, where, um, where the line doesn't cross zero, it means it's statistically significant. That's the confidence <coughs> interval. So what you see is the point estimate 
and then this is the confidence interval. And if it crosses the line, it means we're not sure it's different from random. And if it doesn't cross the line, it means we have 95% confidence that it is different from random. So we're seeing, so we, again, we see this is the one that's significant here, because it's not crossing the line. And we see that translates into about a 7% decrease in Asian American women in management. But let's see for management training. Um, we see three positive effects above the line, so they're statistically significant. And for employee training, we see that one negative effect as shown in the So now the next three um, models again. Yeah. Sorry, I was just wondering if you could say that thing again about if it crosses the line. Sorry, just. So if it crosses the line, it, it means we don't know that it's statistically significant, so you can sort of ignore it. Um, but if it doesn't cross the line, that's the confidence interval. So we have, this is, this is what <coughs> delineates significant from non. So this is, the point estimate is negative, and then because this doesn't cross the line, we have 95% confidence that it's um, statistically significant. But our, our thinking is, as, as I said, how effective these things are is really conditional on what women in management look like already in the firm. Because, as I said, women managers, women in general tend to respond very differently to complaints, to grievances, and to um, training. The DV here, again, is percentage of women in management in each of these demographic right. categories. It is the share of women in management, <coughs> white, black, Hispanic, Asian American. I was thinking, do I, should I explain the slide, or maybe I should just explain the <coughs> box plot. I was thinking <coughs> doctoral students. Uh, it, this is, it's just a mixed audience. This is the, 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 the spirit of the... <laughs> School. <laughs> I was, I was so, well, but, well, anyway, ask more questions if you feel like this isn't totally clear. But what we see is, so this is the effect of the introduction of grievance procedures after, the, after they get introduced. What does it do to women in management, white, black, Hispanic, and Asian American women, who are in firms that are in the first quartile of total women managers, which means here it means that they have less than about 7% women managers total. So what's it like if you, if you put in a grievance procedure in that kind of place? Well, less than 7%, it looks, we, we see significant negative effects on black, Hispanic, and Asian American mm -hmm. women. That is, their numbers go down. So that's a little bit different from what we saw for grievance procedures before. It was only Asian American, but this is a better model because it more precisely tells us what's going on. And when you get to the fourth quartile, and that's above about 35% of women managers. So that's the fourth quartile, and like if you divide all firms into four groups, the fewest, the next fewest, above the median, and the most, um, these are firms that have the most, although it's not like <coughs> most managers are women. This is, about, this is the range from about 35 to 100%. Um, we see 
Interestingly, if you look for the, at the three minority groups, they sort of are going up across this, and they start to be positive. In fact, Hispanic women, the effect is positive. Right? So the more women managers, remember women believe grievances, they don't, they don't tell you you're crazy. So the more women managers, the less negative effects there are, and there are some positive effects. What's disturbing is for Asian American women, the negative effects persist through the third quartile. So that's like really most employers, Asian American women, are seeing negative effects. And these, you know, these are all negative. It's they're just not quite significant. If we had a bigger sample or more years, we might we would guess that maybe even these would be significant. That's significant at point one, that is 90% confidence. And this is a negative effect for white women at point one, that is we have 90% confidence that that's negative. So we're seeing white women don't have, don't experience the same negative effects across the board, but when you, but the more white, more women you have in management, the more likely white women are to suffer as a consequence of grievance procedures. Ask a question if you're not. Uh, Do we have any data on the makeup of who's making the grievance procedures? In other words, is there any correlation between the demographics of who's making grievance procedures and the demographics of who's suffering? Who's creating the grievance procedures? For example, Asian American <coughs> women are putting forward grievances, uh, more Asian American women on top suffer. Is there any correlation in that direction? That's a good idea. Um, we, you know, we actually we have charges to the EEOC. So we could look at that. That's a, that's a great idea. I mean, we don't have it from this survey, but we, we could match these to the charges. And we guess that would be cool. Can you tell us, or are you going to tell us what's going on here? I mean, why this is not working? What, what is happening with white women as the numbers go up and with Asian Well, so um, I think two kind of simple things. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily make a huge distinction between Asian American and Hispanic women because, you know, those things are not far from each other, right? So, but it, generally, minority women, it looks like, suffer um, from the introduction of grievance procedures when there aren't any women in management, right? And that sort of goes away. But it looks for, like for white women, grievance procedures activate the group threat when there are a lot of women in management and then and so like white men are not helping they are probably poor white i just say white men because they tend to be the biggest um, group of managers in most organizations it looks like group threat is causing them to this is what the previous studies have suggested mess with things that are supposed to protect women rather than work with things that are supposed to protect women once they feel threatened. Uh, along Nicole's thinking, are the grievance procedures themselves alike enough? Or are there, is there a way to look at, is there a third party person that gets involved with the grievance procedure? Like you know, where I used to have to work, I had to actually file a grievance with my boss's boss. It was completely, it was a joke. But here you can go to a Title IX officer and remain anonymous and so do, is, there a, is there any research on the kinds of grievance procedures that might work better than others? There's very little research on the kinds of grievance procedures and what they do, and that's because most of the studies that show negative effects of grievance procedures are 
surveys of women and their retrospective life history surveys where they, you know, they kind of followed their careers, or some of them like uh, the McLaughlin and all use the NLSY, I think, are, you know, real-time surveys, but, but so they're not organizational surveys, so that's the, but we are doing it now. Oh. So we are piloting a, a survey of employers that's much more detailed in terms of what, how exactly the grievance process works and what exactly training. Just to build on that question, um, so you might be aware that um, Harvard University as an employer is currently in negotiations with the union, and one of the main disputes with the union is around whether a Title IX grievance procedure is sufficient, <coughs> um, or whether, like, the union has been arguing that uh, many people don't want to go and complain to a Title IX office because they feel there's, like, a conflict of interest complaining to a university body or an internal body. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on um, external agencies or bodies, such as a union, being brought in mm -hmm. to like to be the person that you complain to. So I am aware of the negotiations with the union, and um, I'm going to talk in the last slide about uh, some possible alternatives and what we know about them, which is not a ton. Uh, but it, it is the case that um, if you look at the, the AAU survey from 2015 of women including graduate students and undergraduates. It looks like people are not using the Title IX office. But of course, things have changed. Um, as Seth could tell you, in the last few years, the, the Title IX office at least is hearing a lot more complaints, although not that many of them become formal grievances, but they at least. Um, going back to the graph, when you describe the fourth quartile, you seem to indicate that the cause for the negative impact on white women would be backlash on the part of male managers because white women are becoming a threat as they increase in share of management. But about what percentage of managers are women in that fourth quartile? Like, could you get to a point where the majority of managers are women, and then does that flip? Because then it wouldn't be male managers making the decision. Right. Um, so this is this includes organizations from about 35% to 100% women in management. Three-tenths uh, three of 1% of these organizations are 100% women managers. Um, and, but this negative effect kicks in around here. So if we look, if we drop the, this to like um, the like the 75th to the 85th percentile, we still see a negative effect. So they're not pushing up against the end. Also, um, in these models, we have the non-interacted fourth quartile, which will pick up if we're hitting up against the top. We only get this negative effect here. So, but it's a great question, thank you. Did that, did you get, did that make sense? I'm still curious to know. Is that effect still present when it's women managers deciding on the harassment question? When it's women managers? Majority, majority female. Like, Does, would, would you still see an, a, a negative effect if the management were predominantly female? Oh, uh, oh that's a good question. Um, that's we, question. Uh, That's interesting. At above the 90th percentile, it, it, it goes away. Um, but I had not thought about that being why. I mean, at some point, it shouldn't be Cause this men is like giving the a backlash as women. Women should be the decision makers. Right. So. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. We, um, 
the paper's been under two rounds of reviews, and I, we, we put that in into the, in the appendix, but it's, and nobody picked that up as that's probably what's going on, so thanks. <laughs> well done. <laughs> Most embarrassing, Sandra and I didn't think about what's going on. Just out of curiosity, when you say 90th percentile, that means what percentage of women in magic? It's still, um, it's like 55, 60, I think. I can't remember exact, but that's the 90th percentile, not of women, not 90th percent women in magic, but the 10% best companies. Okay, so this is what happens to manager training, uh, after manager training, depending on how many women there are in, in management. <coughs> and this, so this pattern is also consistent with our idea. First, the manager training generally works. So at some point, it works for all four groups. It has positive and significant effects. So the first one is in the first quartile, that's the second quartile, and then these are in the fourth quartile. So for white women in organizations that have, that are in like the lowest two, the lowest half of women managers, um, manager training of the, here's, this is a management problem for you to deal with, um, manager training has positive effects on white women in management, but they go away Again, that's consistent with our group threat. If you get too many white women in <coughs> management, then too many women in management, then there's going to be backlash against white women in particular because they're a threat. But for black, Hispanic, and Asian American women, in the most, in the companies with the most gender diverse management teams, we start to see positive effects, but not in, not in three quarters of companies. So in half of companies, we're seeing positive effects for white women, and in about a quarter of companies, we're seeing positive effects for minority women, but they're not the same companies. Because you need a lot of women in management to prevent negative effects to, to even manager-type training. But you get too many women for minorities, but if you get too many women in management, it looks like there's backlash against white women. And then the last one is, so that just shows this graphically. This, I think, is very good news, but I, I don't know, how do we get that down? Well, I have an idea in a minute. But, um, and then the, this is just the last one. There's less going on with employee training, but you remember that in the first slide I showed, we only saw one effect of employee training, of the scolding, you can't, you shouldn't do this type. And that effect was for white women, and it turns out that when we break it out, it's only really significant in the fourth, fourth quartile, the organizations with the most women managers. So there are statistical reasons why, you know, maybe it's actually, if we combine the first, the second, third, and fourth, it would be significant because the cell sizes are smaller. But uh, but it, the bad news in general is it doesn't look like employee training is helping at all. And it's what a lot of the money and a lot of the aggression <coughs> in organizations surrounds. So, summary slide. So, uh, should we replace grievance systems? 
Was that your name tag, Cassandra? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Cassandra's question. Uh, the problem is we don't have a ton of research on alternatives. There's some research on the second thing, independent investigator, which is what the military tends to do for assault. Um, so they don't, the way a grievance procedure usually works is you have to go with your attorney or your fake attorney, and then the person who's accused goes with their attorney or their fake attorney before a board of people who are managers and people from HR. And then there's a sort of little hearing, and they adjudicate, and they make a decision. The military has been assigning, uh, creating some kinds of independent investigators to just do do an investigation, talk to the people involved, try to figure out what That's happened. What Harvard does. Harvard ODR, sort of, that was the theory. And it is what the Obama administration tried to get with, with the um, 2011 um, Dear Colleague letter, tried to get every college and university to do. So, I mean, it seems like it kind of works there. So I think there's hope for that. And there's some evidence that it works. I mean, we, we're now in the middle of a big experiment because a lot of schools did this. And we'll see. Um, ombudsperson is somebody who is not supposed to help you with a grievance, but just hear your, hear, like talk to you and help you figure out what you would like to do, how you would solve it. And that could just be that you know you switch out of one chemistry class and you go into another class, chemistry class if it's a university, or it could be you know you you try to make sure you're not in the same room with a guy or whatever it's going to be, but not necessarily file a grievance. And then escort reporting systems, which you may know something about, um, proposed by legal scholar Ian Ayers in 2012. So where you report anonymously, either online or to somebody, and you name the person. And then if other people come forward and have are harassed or assaulted by the same person, then you get notified. Uh, or And sometimes HR gets notified. So those seem like I don't know, possible ways to go forward. I think there's the most evidence for independent investigators. I think um, employers are not going to do that. And I think even universities with the new Betsy DeVos Title IX assault and harassment rules, I think universities may stop, stop doing that too. Um, there, it seems like there's good evidence that bystander intervention training works, at least. I think ours is the first study that shows that, it, that manager type training, which is kind of like bystander intervention training, looks like it sort of works actually to keep women in the workforce. The other studies, as I said before, have mostly been about um, whether you can change the behavior of individuals or their intention, to, either their intention to intervene or their self-reported post-hoc intervention. I, so, our findings are kind of mixed on whether you should just fire all the men managers and put in women. Uh, and that's going to be hard to do in most places because uh, managers tend not to leave their jobs. Turnover rate for sales workers at Walmart is really high, but for managers at Harvard University is kind of low. So, so and you can't really fire people that easily. But even if you could, our findings are kind of mixed, right? If you've got too many women in management, these, even if you fix these processes, they might not work for, they might not help white women. This study is a study done in the armed forces. Um, 
And it suggests that uh, what, it, what it shows is that uh, women in units who report that their leaders, their unit commander, made honest and reasonable efforts to prevent and reduce harassment, those women report, and women in their units, report um, more efficacy for training, more greater efficacy for grievance procedures. So the two things we're talking about, they seem to work better if your unit leader made honest and reasonable efforts, and that's a pretty you know, vague category. Could mean almost anything. Though, and women in those units also report lower levels of personal harassment in the last year and lower levels of observed harassment in the unit in the last three years. So I think what employers should do, since they probably can't only hire women, is to make this not one of the many things you take and make this like support for trying to solve this problem. Make this not one of the many things you take into account, like not a um, alternative to other kinds of uh, excellence in hiring managers and hiring deans, but a, a job requirement, a necessary condition to be hired. And so you could, in the interviews, ask people what they've done before, and if they can't think of anything, you could say, well, if, they, if you've been a dean somewhere else for six years and you didn't experience this and hadn't thought about how to deal with it, you're probably not dean material or similar for managers. So, but that's, well, that's my best case. The problem is we don't really have a ton of research on what really successfully reduces harassment in the, in the workplace. We just don't know enough. So we also need more research. Leaves us. A couple minutes for questions. Yeah. So I'm. My question is about the bystander intervention training and the seemingly opposite effects that it has in different quartiles, um, comparing white women to women of color. And I was wondering if you looked at all about uh, pervasive societal norms such as chivalry or benevolent sexism as an interaction with that. Hmm. Say more about how you think that would interact. Yeah, so I mean, there's this pervasive stereotype of the fragile white woman and that white women be protecting. And so then I'm wondering if in the first quartile, if there's a small number of white women and there's this bystander intervention training, even if you think of like Jackson Cat's Mentors in Violence Prevention, where it's very much a like, oh, it's our responsibility, we have to step up, we have to be protectors, mm -hmm. right. that it's playing into the benevolent sexism that ends up protecting white women and not protecting women of color. And then as women become more and more of the management, there may be less of a pervasive um, pervasiveness of chivalry and benevolence hmm. in the corporate culture. Oh, that's and interesting. Yeah. If you look at that at all. Um, we had, yeah. I know that literature. We hadn't thought of that as a possible mechanism. I mentioned the Justine Kinkler um, studies of how uh, the training in general tends to reinforce gender stereotypes rather than, um, and but and you you would expect a kind of intersectional difference between white women and minority women, and the, when there are few women in management. Yeah. Want to say another word about why that might be? Sure. So 
I, I mean, it, it's it's the, the similar idea that um, the pervasive social cultural idea that white women need protecting. So mm -hmm. even if a woman had uh, any background has gotten to this point, the idea that a woman who happens to be white needs to be protected, needs to have this bubble around her fragile self, and that's very counter to pervasive social mm -hmm. stereotypes around black women, for sure. example. Um, yeah. But can I jump? I mean, I think it would also fit with system justification, right? So. So, it, and there is some stuff, a critical theory and mm -hmm. things like that. It, I think it also fits with the Livingston and Rosette et al. arguments. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there's at least, you know, critical theorists would argue it also relates to, you know, who is considered a likely romantic partner or sexual partner or life partner, right? And so there's, to reinforce system justification, it makes kind of more sense to the extent that women fit <coughs> into the system by being in that, you know, role. care, role. Um, uh, and then these other women are less eligible for that type of role and mm -hmm. so kind of fall out of that narrative, social narrative. Interesting. So that could even replace our group breadth thesis, basically. Reviewers haven't thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was just thinking about your solutions at the end. You mentioned this in the Harvard Business Review article, but one, one of the themes in our class is how the law in all these areas, in many ways, is not only not keeping, is not consistent with what people's real experiences are, but in many ways reinforces negative ways of doing this. And so your point that reporting to HR or reporting to the Title IX officer, making sure everything gets funneled to one one person or one office is what the law has required because that's why the housing employer or university knows or should have known. But you mentioned, and I think in the American Academy of Sciences and Medicine with graduate students mentioned that one possible promising avenue is to have multiple <coughs> ways of reporting, that you don't have to go to one person for, in, in fact, any manager should be able to. So if you, for some reason, your manager or your advisor or whatever, that there should be systems set up where they can all So you think that's going to push back against the idea of these alternative um, procedures? Uh, no, I think it's, it, I think <coughs> it think it's going to be promising, mm -hmm. but, it, but it's very inconsistent with the, well, how the training is now, which is here what you need to know, and here's how you need to, here's who you need to report to. It goes, right. it goes against what the culture is now, but I think it could, it could be help with the culture shift a little bit and also just give more avenues for people to feel like they have an option between saying nothing or final form. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. And I, I do, one of the reasons I don't think we're going to see some of these alternative systems put into place is exactly because organizations, employers, and universities, as you suggest, think that they have to know what the problem looks like. Otherwise, or that they the will be held liable. Yeah, exactly. But nobody, very few people have In your review of um, all the data, did you see any instances where someone with a high likelihood to harass had reduced that likelihood after some sort of program or training? Or did you see more of the people who were of a low likelihood and then reduce their likelihood even? The studies that differentiate people seem to only show that 
the good get better and the bad get worse. But I think that's another area where we could use more research. And it's hard to figure out how you do that in the field, not just in the experiment. But, we, but you know, experimental research is very useful for this kind of thing because it is hard to, you know, intervene in the field. And I wonder if there's any way to look at sort of um, different types of organizations, some of the startup organizations, or places that are beginning with a, you know, a different view of what the workplace should look like, uh -huh. and if there might be any uh, field studies of being able to see um, at, you know, does it look a little different in not just flatter organizations, but organizations that from the very start are seeing themselves as having a different ethos around collaboration, around uh, equity, and so forth. Um, so in this study, we, um, we do look at newer and older organizations, but in order to be in the sample for long enough, you have to be kind of 20 years old at the time. But I don't know that there's any research on that. Of course, you know, if anecdotally, the news reports about the tech sector and even the biotech sector are pretty discouraging. So. Um, uh, it looks like startup culture might be bad. Um, but, uh, but in the, I mentioned that we're starting a new survey, and we, we're, that is in California, it's only in California. And I hope, so we're going to include the tech sector. And I hope we'll be able to see whether these interventions have different effects also on another generation of people. Because, um, you know, Joe Biden's excuse is that um, he's from a different world. Thank you so very much. Your work is so important and engaging us in the conversation as well, so we're extremely appreciative. Oh, and I, I've given this talk four times, and this is the first time I've gotten a lot of questions that made me rethink our analysis, so thank you. So <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.